Hey, it's Chris Garlock. Happy May Day! Workers around the world are celebrating today, and we're pleased to have a very special show for you here on Labor History Today. We Mean to Make Things Over, a history of May Day, is a new half-hour documentary video written and directed by Fred Glass. Fred's a labor historian and retired union communications director, Elise Bryant and I talked with Fred recently, and we were joined by labor historian Joe McCartan for a conversation about the origins of May Day and about the future of the fight for economic justice. By the way, the film will be available online starting Monday, May 2nd at The Fred Letter, that's T-H-E-F-R-E-D-L-E-T-T-E-R dot com. We've got a link in the show notes. Here's the show. There are two origins for the holiday of May Day. One is the ancient celebration of spring, the promise of rebirth in the seasons and the renewal of the earth. The other is the assertion of workers' rights, also promising a rebirth of sorts, of our society, on the basis of solidarity and social justice. That's from the brand new film, We Mean to Make Things Over, a history of May Day. Elise Bryant and I talked to the film's director, Fred Glass, and labor historian Joe McCartan about the American origins of May Day, and of course, Fred's film. We'll be playing clips from it throughout the interview. And flying monkeys come up somehow as well. Seriously. So, all right, let's just jump right into it. We want to talk about um, the film that you've made, Fred, which I watched last night and loved. And halfway through, I was sitting there watching with my wife and I said, that sounds like Elise Bryant. And sure enough, <laughs> it was. Her voice did grace the video. Uh, the eight hour song was brought to life from the 19th century by her talents. Thank you, Fred. I'm curious. This is what we ask all our presenters. What's your favorite movie that you can remember at your earliest age? That you, when you saw this movie, whatever age that was, earliest age, when you went, that's movies. I love this stuff. Probably a little different from most people my age. I'll be 70 this year. And um, I grew up in a house where my father had a 16 millimeter film library. And that's what he did for a living for many years was he rented out 16 millimeter films and they were early sound and silent films. He had one of the largest collections in the country. So um, modern times, Charlie Chaplin's modern times. Wow. Wow. Impacted me early. Do you remember how old you were when you saw it the first time? I was probably seven or eight years old. Uh 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 Wow. That's great. So, Joe, I wanted to get your reactions to Fred's film uh, as a historian. I love the film. Um, and it tells a story that, you know, too many people don't know today about the struggle that took place around the eight hour day, about the origins of May Day, about uh, a history that, you know, is more relevant than ever, really. Uh, but that so few Americans really get exposure to. I love the fact that it tells that story in a, in a bite-sized 
uh, way as well. I think it really has the ability to reach a, a broad audience. Um, it's historically sound, um, and it's it's also a riveting tale. So we're not going to hear Joe's favorite movie? because <laughs> I, I was leaving that for you. So yeah, Joe, what's the earliest remembrance? Oh my gosh, probably, you know, it's probably like I was scared to death by the Wizard of Oz and the Flying Monkeys. Those Flying Monkeys, you know, I always think of them when I think of like union busting bosses and stuff like that. Uh, that image comes to mind still. Still afraid of the Flying Monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you both. Yeah. So we're here to talk about uh, the Wobblies and May Day. Right. Yeah. Because that's that's Fred's film. And so what was your take, Chris? Well, I loved it. I, 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 I wanted to have Joe join us because, you know, my you know, rudimentary understanding of labor history, but it just seemed like you really did a terrific job, Fred, of being both I think true to the history, but you did something that, you know, we try to do uh, in the podcast that, that Joe and I do labor history today, which is always, always tie what's happened in the past to the present. Cause that seems really important to us. And I, I love that you do that because often I think people are too happy to, to have the past in the past. Right. Yeah. I, I teach labor history. I've taught California labor history for the last 25 years at City College. Fantastic book. Oh, thank you. Um, and it was clear to me that my students, many of whom are activists within the labor movement, also don't know that story. Mm. And so uh, the origin of the, the video was that I retired from the California Federation of Teachers as the communications director after 28 years five years ago now. And within the first few months after I retired, the union called me, the legislative director, to say, we've got a bill we're running in Sacramento uh, to make May Day a school holiday, including uh, developing curriculum for it and uh, swapping the day, one of the president's days off for that one. Hmm. And we need somebody to come tell the legislators what this is about. So I drove up to Sacramento and found myself sitting before the uh, Assembly Education Committee. And I had my two minutes telling them what this was about and why it was important and why it should be an American California holiday. And when I finished talking, there was the silence that extended. <laughs> and it was probably 20, 25 seconds, which, you know, in a legislative hearing is a long time. Anybody who's had any experience with legislators know that silence is not their preferred mode. And there they were. Finally, one of them says to uh, Santiago, the guy who's the legislator carrying it, and by the way, it took 30 legislators that the CFT approached before he said that he would carry the bill. They said to him, uh, we have Labor Day. Why do we need May Day? And he said, Labor Day is for American workers. This is for workers all over the world. This is, uh, you know, true on the face of it. it maybe it doesn't get to the heart of the matter, but it, it is, is true. But it was clear to me that there was an image in the heads of these um, legislators, all of them in that silence. And that was the military parade in Red Square with tanks bristling with missiles and so on, which is the image that was beamed out on television for decades and decades throughout the Cold War on May 1st. And the bill made it through the committee because we had the votes, but it died on the assembly floor and that was that. And then um, from the same local, the San Diego Faculty Union, uh, City College of San Diego, that had brought this bill idea to the California Federation of Teachers, um, one of them called me up and said, come on down and give a talk on May Day. We want to have students and faculty together hearing about May Day. So I knocked together a slideshow and lecture. It was uh, more popular than I had imagined it would be. There were well over 100 people there. And that was kind of the germ of the idea for making the video. As I, I regave that talk a number of times for unions and 
um, DSA chapters, Democratic Socialists of America chapters in the Bay Area, as we approached May Day for the next couple of years, and then came COVID, and I decided, okay, we don't really need me to come along to tell this story. Let's turn it into a video. And it, it fit well with the, the new collaboration that's going on between a revived socialist movement in this country with DSA and the labor movement. Because, um, you know, over the last several years since the first Bernie campaign, in many cities, central labor councils and, and unions working on political legislative campaigns have found that DSA is a reliable partner. And this extended to working together on May Day celebrations, which you would not have found unions touching with a 10-foot pole throughout the Cold War. So this is an exciting new development. I just want to, for our listeners, just clear up that DSA is Democratic Socialists of America. It's hard to talk about May Day without talking about socialism. I mean, you can sort of talk around it, right, Joe? But I mean, mm -hmm. it's not really true. The first unions were built by workers in the 1790s, and by the 1820s, they had founded working men's parties. One of the key demands of these organizations was a shorter workday. This difference of opinion between workers and employers often resulted in strikes and sometimes spread beyond one workplace to an entire industry or even an entire city. Well, that's right, Chris. And, you know, May Day has its origins in a resolution um, adopted in, in 1889 by the Second Socialist International, inspired by the struggle that took place in the United States, uh, as Fred's film shows, uh, the, the great eight-hour strikes of 1886, which led to the, the Haymarket conflict and to the execution of um, of leaders who were involved in the worker movement in Chicago at that time, who, who themselves had socialist connections, of course. So, you know, the origins of May Day and really the origin of the eight-hour struggle is very much intertwined with the socialist movement. And in part, that that's why I think it got marginalized for so long in the United States. So right after the Haymarket um, riot, as it's sometimes called, um, there was a red scare in the United States and, and that, that um, association of the labor movement with radicalism helped unravel the Knights of Labor um, and led the emerging American Federation of Labor to really be leery of being too connected to anything that smacked of radicalism and that, that you know, um, imprinted the American labor movement for a long time. And so as this film shows very well, in 1894, the U.S. adopts, you know, the first Monday in September as Labor Day, in part to kind of distance itself from, from this association. And for so long then after that, there was this reluctance of the U.S. labor movement to, to um, have that association there. And, and once the Bolshevik Revolution happens in 1917, and then as Fred points out, you know, you start to get these images later of, you know, May Day marking kind of the triumph of socialist revolution in, in the Russian style. Uh, American workers became estranged from this holiday in a sense, this holiday that really they were responsible for providing the impetus for. And so the exciting thing about this film, I think, is it helps us recover that at an important time in history. Because, um, you know, the labor movement um, was the first really internationalist political movement. Um, and what happened in, in Paris in 1889 when they were adopting this is that for 30 years before the creation of the League of Nations, it was the labor movements of the world that were trying to create an internationalist uh, framework that would bring peace, right? Um, and labor has this great internationalist tradition that this film helps to revive at a time when we really need it, right? As we look around the world and see democracy threatened in so many ways. Yeah, true this. Um, I think, Fred, when I, when I started watching the film, I was fully expecting to see old footage from 
whatever back in the whatever the day and yada yada and that it started right now and so, so when you said modern times was your was your favorite i was like it starts in modern times recent history has been marked by a convergence of dire trends covid19 arrived and revealed terrible inadequacies in our preparedness for pandemics to combat the virus shelter-in-place rules brought the economy to a standstill with more people thrown out of work than since the Great Depression. The videotaped murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer set off nationwide protests against systemic racism unprecedented in their scale. By that summer, as the pandemic and protests continued, climate change pushed its way back into the public eye in the form of huge hurricanes in the East and enormous wildfires in the West. All of this occurred by 2020, and that was before the election to decide whether Trump would be allowed to continue to erode American democracy and push the country toward authoritarian rule. So how, how did you make that decision? How did you come to that? What, what made you, inspired you to do that? Well, I think like Joe was saying, the relevance of labor history is that it has some, hopefully, kind of uh, lessons that are important for the present day. And, you know, I'm... Uh, I sort of stumbled into becoming a labor historian. It wasn't really what I set out to do. I was a union communications guy. And because I was working for a union that valued labor history, uh, I was asked in our publications to include labor history columns. That's really what got me into that. That and the fact that my family had a union history, and so it resonated with me to do that. Mm -hmm. I think in order for especially young people who make up the bulk of DSA, uh, it really helps to show right at the outset that there are contemporary reasons why we look at history. And the, the struggles are, are not so different today than they were you know, at any other point in time in a capitalist society. What struck me, even though I'm not an expert in the area of the... Um, of, of Mayday history by any means, um, because the events mainly took place outside of California, uh, although certainly there were California events that related to it along the way. Um, it, it struck me that there were uh, several ideas that came along for the ride with the history of Mayday that were always there. One is that workers deserve a work holiday. And whether that's Labor Day or May Day, you know, that's something that all workers certainly agree on, whether they think it should be used for raising uh, political issues or going shopping. They, they think, yes, we, we could use a work holiday. Um, the general strike to achieve the eight-hour day is something that has been there from the very beginning. The Socialist International did say in every country, workers should find in their own ways the way to achieve this holiday and up to and including a general strike. And, and that was in fact done in many countries. And then uh, at the root of it all was the eight-hour day, which, you know, it's been so long that the eight-hour day has been the standard since 1938 here in the United States with the Fair Labor Standards Act, that we forget just how radical a demand that was in the 19th century when workers were commonly working eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And uh, in the video, uh, you know, there's a, a quote from an early leader of the eight hour movement who says something to the effect that workers are generally too exhausted. He said people who worked 12 or 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week, could only think of eating and sleeping. They didn't have the energy or imagination to dream of a better world, let alone demand it or act together to achieve it. And what's dangerous about the eight-hour day is that if implemented, it gives workers the time to think not only about their own personal needs, but also about the broader society and what might be changed about it to make, make things better. You need a little bit of leisure time to do that. And, and then lastly, so you have work holiday, general strike, eight-hour day, and then immigrant labor at the center of it, mm -hmm. continuously recomposing the American working class. That is the American working class, is immigrant labor. 
And none of these ideas are viewed fondly by the capitalist class and its government then or now. And so it's not surprising that the US government has done such things like under Eisenhower uh, declaring May 1st to be Law Day, looking for any way to bury the holiday. But you know, a funny thing happened on the way to stamping out May Day. It didn't happen. It it it, it keeps on coming back, and we're seeing now, I think, uh, a revival like we haven't seen since the 1940s. This film is about the opposite of capitalism. It's about democratic socialism, or more precisely, how the dream of a better world for the vast majority of people who live in it came to be symbolized by a holiday. Mayday. I found this uh, great quote from the Times from 1886 I wanted to share and get you both to react to. Uh, Joe, you may have heard this, that the, the Times in 1886 declared the struggle for an eight-hour workday to be, quote-unquote, uh, un-American and called public demonstrations for the shorter hours, quote, labor disturbances brought about by foreigners, unquote. Mm -hmm. And then other publications uh, said that the eight-hour workday would bring about, quote, loafing and gambling, rioting, debauchery, mm -hmm. and drunkenness. <laughs> Sounds like fun. I know. Yeah, right? We could only hope so. <laughs> right? Where, where do we go for this loafing and gambling, and, and especially the, <laughs> the, the debauchery? I had to look it up because I wasn't quite sure what it was. <laughs> Um, and maybe uh, Joe and then Fred. Well, yeah, Chris, thank you for reading those quotes, because that's exactly what employers were saying in, in those years. And there was a presumption that, you know, um, left to their own devices, workers were just lazy and would never do anything. Um, in fact, it was the way that work was constructed that, you know, made workers want to resist um, the way in which they were being exploited and employers really were threatened by the eight hour day because of the very reason that uh, Fred was talking about from that quote, that quote he, he was referring to earlier was from a guy named Ira Stewart, who right after the Civil War wrote a couple of the earliest pamphlets arguing for the eight hour day. And from the beginning, Ira Stewart, as Fred said, saw, saw the struggle to reduce hours is not only about economics and the workplace, but about how society should be organized and what it means to be a citizen. And what had just occurred, of course, was the Civil War in which slavery had been overthrown finally through a bloody struggle. And now the question was, like, what, what does work mean now? Um, and, and what Ira Stewart uh, argued for was that work had to be part of being a, a full-out citizen and uh, you needed to have the time to educate yourself and to be participating as a citizen and, and the way work was being organized was a another way of coercive labor and in that period the term um, wage slavery began to emerge and um, people were saying like hey you know we've ended you know, chattel slavery, but we still haven't ended coercion. Uh, and the eight hour day was about attacking that. And that's what made it radical. Across the Atlantic, Karl Marx, a leader in the small but influential International Workingmen's Association, also known as the First International, agreed. The eight hour day, he said, was a central goal of the workers' movement and an important step in the direction of socialism. Employers, as well as workers, knew this. So bosses did everything in their power to prevent it. That's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, today we're losing the eight-hour day. We're losing it in various ways, um, both in terms of reasonable employment at, for reasonable compensation, uh, for full-time work. Uh, also, full-time work is being carved up into precarious labor of various types. And we need to remember these struggles, both for the inspiration of having won the victory at a certain point in time, but also in terms of the tactics and strategies that workers used creatively over time in order to get what they needed. 
those tactics and strategies are going to be different today. Um, but we can certainly learn from the the ways that workers came together in the past to think about these things um, and and doing things that are usually uh, considered outside the pale. Most workers don't walk into work every day thinking, hmm, if we all sat down together in this workplace, maybe we could do something about the way they're treating us. Most of my students, for instance, who grew up in the Bay Area, don't know that there was something called the San Francisco General Strike in 1934, and yet this was an event that really shaped California history and helped shape national labor history. It was, you know, one year to the day that Howard Sperry and Nick Bordois were shot by police on the streets of San Francisco during the maritime strike that the National Labor Relations Act was signed by President Roosevelt. And that's not a coincidence. There were general strikes in three American cities that year. There was a general strike of the textile industry. People were being killed. There needed to be some kind of conflict resolution mechanism in law um, so that these things didn't happen continuously. So thinking back on those kinds of events that most people don't know about because labor history is not taught in K-12, um, these are ways that I think workers today can take some inspiration and and address the problems that we face today. Um, I do want to say a couple words also about who I worked with on this video, because uh, video filmmaking is a collaborative kind of enterprise. And uh, Josh Sances, who was my artist, who uh, drew a a couple dozen images for this video using a technique called scratchboard. Um, those are gorgeous images that he he made, and the video would not have been anywhere near as effective without that work at the center of it. Um, Paul Zappia, who is a young uh, animator in Los Angeles, um, an active member of the DSA chapter there, uh, his animation, I, I, I loved what he did to help us uh, bridge various gaps in the narrative. And my editor, Rick Tejada Flores, who stitched it all together. Rick is an award-winning PBS documentary filmmaker going back to the 1980s. And to have his talents at my disposal. And all of these people um, did this for free. These were... These were contributions because they all believed in the idea that more people should know about Mayday and its history. So I just want to recognize that in addition to Elise, there were all these other people who um, contributed their talents to making the video happen. Yes. And isn't that what union is about? Is you and I on? I mean, it, it, it takes a collection of people. It's not one individual. It's not just the Fred Glass show, right? And, and I, I learned this recently at a DSA meeting, and somebody said, you know, in filmmaking, the, the gift of the film, the craft of the film is in the editing. It's how it's all put together. But it takes a bunch of other folks to, to make that, that happen. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing forth their names and, and calling out loud. So also in the film, you know, you talked about Black Lives Matter. And, and how did that tie into, how did that, how did that come to you in the context of this wobbly celebration of May Day? Well, there's been a long period of time where um, the United States working class has been relatively quiescent compared to other periods in history, like mm -hmm. the 1930s and 40s, the 1960s and 70s. It's been a good 40-year kind of dry period with occasional spikes, like um, you know the Occupy movement. Um, but Black Lives Matter in the midst of the pandemic, I think showed that uh, the ability of American working people to come together mm -hmm. and fight oppression in mass action was still alive, still possible. And we had been seeing that also a couple of years previously with the red state revolt education union strikes. Right, yes, yes. Arizona, West Virginia, right. um, Oklahoma, where, um, you know, these were essentially general strikes of public education. Uh, 
And we hadn't seen strikes on that scale for many years. Right. And so um, Black Lives Matter, while it wasn't directly work related, was certainly a generally working class uprising, a biracial or multiracial working class uprising. And so I think it, it was an important part of the framing for the video because it was um, a, a signal that yes, we're not in our modern internet age locked behind our computers. We can come out to the streets together in order to fight for justice. I want to go back to something that kind of got touched on when, when you guys were both talking about the eight hour movement. And I'm connecting that uh, to what they're calling the great resignation. Uh, and also the, the question of, you know, working in offices, right? I mean, it, it just seems like over the last couple of years, um, there's been a huge sea change in how people think about work. And I think I was sort of thinking about this, but then watching your film, Fred, you know, all of a sudden it connected with the issues around the eight hour movement. The sentiments for a May Day celebration have never gone away because there's a very powerful cluster of ideas that emerged out of this history. The movement for the eight hour day was tied to an idea for a work holiday on May 1st and also to a general strike to achieve the eight hour day. You can think about it this way. A work holiday is, in effect, a legal general strike, which is why the pushback has often been so harsh by employers and government. If we go back to the ideas of the 19th century, time off work can provide the space needed by workers to consider other ways of organizing not only their own time outside work, but reorganizing society itself as well. That's a compelling concept, and it accounts for the ongoing attempts to revive the tradition as well as continuing efforts to suppress it. So maybe uh, Joe will go to you first and then, and then go back to Fred. Well, I think that's one of the things, Chris, that makes Fred's film really timely for us. I mean, to retell the story of the eight hour struggle now in the light of um, how people are coming out of the pandemic and, and what impact the pandemic had on workers and the relationship to work. I think the great resignation is um, something that is one of the after effects of this pandemic where workers basically um, had the time really to think about, do I really want to continue to work in this way? A lot of people are saying no. A lot of women uh, had to leave the workforce because they had so many family demands that were exacerbated during COVID when kids were home and stuff too. So to think about the, this struggle in this moment when a lot of people are reevaluating the relationship to work and a lot of other people found that with this instrument we're talking over right now that you know work can be done anywhere anytime and like to, to contain it within eight hours has become in some ways much more difficult now so it's a perfect moment for us to step back think about these issues of our relation to work and this film really helps us with that yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, just as the eight-hour day struggle um, opens up this utopian moment where we can think about, okay, what else do we want to do besides work? The pandemic helped to do that as well. And so, you know, those two things being brought together is not a bad idea. Uh we, we have an opening here, I think, at this moment in time to talk about other ways of organizing our time and organizing our society. And uh, I think that some, some people instinctively, without you know, really reflecting deeply on it, uh, do understand coming out of the pandemic that things should be different. And some people um, are able to take the, that insight and expand upon it. So it, it looks at the way we can restructure society. And um, if we don't, in fact, take advantage of that now, um, the opportunity will probably go away as it, it does when it's not seized. So this is a, a good moment for that. I mean, especially with the Cold War hangover dissipating and the ability for union leaders to understand that there's a congruence 
between the common interests of workers and socialist ideas. I think this is a, a really, a, a really profoundly um, fraught moment where, where we can go one direction or another. So let's go the right way. Let's take a brief detour to look at common elements of general strikes and some examples. Four things are usually required. A generalized anger in the working class, a call by worker leadership for a general strike, an organizational structure in place that can carry it out, and a spark. In that same year of 1919 in February, 65,000 workers went out on the Seattle general strike. A hundred unions affiliated with the Central Labor Council joined a solidarity strike in support of shipyard workers who were already out. The general strike lasted a week, during which workers ran the city, teaching themselves that such things could be done. But it ended with raids of IWW and socialist offices and mass arrests amid a vicious, coordinated, employer- and government-led Red Scare. In 1934, during the Great Depression, Mayday drew a couple hundred thousand marchers in New York. San Francisco saw smaller demonstrations. But nine days later, maritime workers went out on a West Coast-wide strike. After two participants were killed by police, the San Francisco Labor Council called a general strike. The work stoppage brought virtually all industrial and commercial operations to a halt. After this display of determined collective power, maritime workers gained union recognition, substantial increases in wages, and control over their hiring halls. One year to the day after the San Francisco strikers were killed, Congress passed and President Roosevelt signed the National Labor Relations Act, or NLRA, establishing a national legal mechanism for peaceful workplace conflict resolution. Three years later, he signed the Fair Labor Standards Act, and eight hours finally became the workday standard. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You got shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. Yeah, and and I think I think that's happening. I. I I, I just wanted to get your uh, comments on what's happening at Amazon and what's happening at Starbucks uh, and this energy that's, that's made manifest uh, right now. So the numbers that we're looking at in terms of strikes and union organizing are not like the big moments in previous labor history. This is not like the 1930s. It's not like the, the 1960s and the public sector union movement. Um, but these are bigger. No, no. Why, why is it not like that? Is it because of the numbers or what? what do you yeah, think? that's what I'm saying is okay. that it, we, we're not looking at millions and millions of workers in motion mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. we did with the CIO in the 1930s and 40s or public sector unions in the 1960s and 70s. But we are looking at something that is a significant surge compared to the last 40 or 50 years. Mm. And so it, it, I'm not willing to say, yes, we're, this is going to expand and expand. We don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. But uh, it is very promising that you know, young people, particularly in places like Starbucks and, and Staten Island, Amazon, uh, that they do have a different idea about unions than maybe previous generations did. They're not as subject to the kinds of employer propaganda that suffuses most discourse about uh, labor relations in our society. You know, in, in the year 2000, the AFL-CIO did its annual or biannual poll of American attitudes toward unions. And I remember talking to Denise Mitchell about this, who was the director of communications at the time for the AFL-CIO, where she said the shocking thing this time around was that for the first time, over 50% of the respondents to their poll did not know what a union was or did. 
And that's because I think largely there, the decline in union density in the workforce had reached the point where most people didn't come into contact on a daily basis with somebody in their family or a friend or a neighbor or in the workplace or members of unions. That is more of a problem, especially now with young people um, than anti-union propaganda is because it's very similar to the reason why DSA is almost entirely young people. It's because they're facing in their own lives a situation that helps them to see that capitalism is not working very well. It's um, destroying the planet. Uh, it's encouraging horrible divisions among people who actually have common interests. And it's, um, it's not leading to a better future <laughs> for the young people. And, and they're recognizing that. What we're seeing with union organizing now, I think, is a reflection of this. That these are, by and large, young people in Starbucks, in the museums and cultural institutions that are organizing, in journalism. These are the places where union organizing is, you know, flowering now. It's a young person's game to do this, and it's 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 largely because they're facing objective conditions that help them to see the world in a different way. Joe, I wanted to get uh, your comment because I, I know Fred's correct about that the numbers are not there. There's been a lot of talk about all the organizing, uh, but yeah, when you look at the actual numbers of people organizing or striking, they're actually fairly small. But it it feels it feels really important, and and so I wanted to get some sort of historical perspective on on that. Yeah, I think you know Fred's. Uh analysis of that is on the mark. Um, I think there is a, something important going on though. It's not showing up in the numbers perhaps yet, but the fact that you know a breakthrough happened at Amazon, maybe even another one in Bessemer, we're waiting to see how that election uh, turns out. And that I think in every election but one so far at a Starbucks, the workers are winning. And in recent uh, elections that have been announced, they're winning like by shutouts, like there are no, no votes. Something is afoot. Um, and the thing about labor history is that uh, breakthroughs for the union movement tend to happen in a kind of quantum leap. They don't happen gradually, like a gradual uptick. Uh, Something happens where a burst of energy occurs and a mega change happens. That was what was happening in 1886 when the eight hour strikes were occurring. And that's what gave birth to the AFL. That's how this CIO was born uh, in a moment of struggle that you couldn't anticipate. Even in 1932, the leading economist of labor in the U.S., a guy named George Barnett, he predicted by the end of the 30s, the union movement would be gone. Uh, there was no way in 1932 to predict what would happen in 1935. Just as today, I don't think we can really see where this is going a few years from now. It's not necessarily the case that we're going to have another rebirth on the order of the CIO, but I wouldn't either rule it out. And certainly, I think some of the things we're seeing now are really indicative of a sea change in workers' attitudes. Yeah. And, you know, time, again, is at the essence of it, work time. Like one of the chief problems with Amazon for workers is this thing that Amazon has called time on task where they're monitoring you at every second on the job. And it, it really, you know, makes workers feel like they want a union. A lot of them might, you know, still be afraid about that as workers are everywhere. Um, but as we saw in Staten Island, as maybe we're seeing in Bessemer, you know, fear is starting to maybe give way to like, we need a change. For the last few years, we have been seeing a significant uptick in strike action. After decades of decline in the number of walkouts, public education workers, auto, hotel, and grocery workers, and others have pushed their protests against bad working conditions and inadequate pay into the streets. Yeah, you'll, you'll like this, Joe. It's Easter Sunday, Amazon uh, rolled out an incentive for their workers to... Uh, 
step up their work and they gave them i think it was a bottle of water and some cookies it was worth two dollars and they, they they got about a million dollars in negative publicity off of it so it was a real sort of typical move um just one other uh comment and i think then elise is gonna get wrap things up but another thing fred that your film and and I, I, this may be more of an observation but i'd love if you guys want to respond but watching your film about mayday and the history um was being reminded of how often, you know, working folks were doing something simple like a demonstration, a peaceful demonstration and got shot. And then the fact that you open with Black Lives Matter, um, which is in large part about people getting shot for doing nothing. And that sort of made a connection in my mind. So I guess Fred was, I'm, I'm assuming that's intentional. Oh, yeah. There's a thread that runs through all movements for social justice if they happen to step outside the bounds of what's considered lawful at any given moment. And that is police violence and uh, putting down these um, revolts forcibly. And, you know, uh, one of Joss's images was taken from a famous photograph from the 1934 San Francisco general strike of two strikers lying in pools of blood on the ground. And I didn't realize until the first round of Black Lives Matter was taking off um, the correspondence between the visuals of the violence against labor movements and the violence against black people. But there in the imagery, the iconography, you know, you see the flowers on the ground, um, the the chalk drawn figures on the ground, um, the little memorials set up to where people were killed by police. And they look exactly the same, whether these are images in black and white from the 1930s or from yesterday. Yeah, that that was something that I did do intentionally in the video. Uh, I thought that it would help give young people today an entry point also into thinking about struggles for the eight-hour day and other struggles for uh, workers' rights with what's going on now through Black Lives Matter. And this was pointed out to me. I didn't realize it in a slideshow that I was doing back in 2014, 2015 to a class at UC Berkeley that I was invited to talk at. Um, it was a student that pointed out that correspondence and and it was, you know, oh, why didn't I think of that before? Stunning. Yes, thank you. With lots to think about. Uh, one of the things that popped in my head um, as we were talking was, especially about, you know, what was happening in the 30s, uh, the, the mass, you know, industry, manufacturing. I, mean, I grew up in Detroit, so I grew up in the shadow of the Ford Rouge plant and the Great Lakes Steel, and yes, they employed thousands of people. And John Newton's famous for writing Amazing Grace, uh, who, was, who had run a slave ship himself, had been a slave ship captain, uh, talked to one of the plantation owners, and the, he said uh, that he was told by the plantation owner, we, we calculated, this is the word they use, we calculated that if we clothed, fed, and took care of everybody, they would live to an old age and they would do just fine. But if we don't clothe, feed them, if we don't treat them, if we work them to death, they'll die early, we can just replace them, and then we just keep it going, and that's more profitable. And I think about Amazon when I think about that. And that's not the large numbers of the automobile or the steel industry, but that's where we are right now. And, and people are looking at that, and I think that energy is, is we're going to see uh, more to come. But I want to get your final thoughts before we wrap up here. What's your final thoughts, my, my brothers? Well, I'll just say one, one thing quick. Uh, that is, and, and what makes me very excited about this film is it stirs imagination again about what we can do, what we, well, what's possible? A lot of people don't know this, but the great economist John Maynard Keynes back in 1930, he wrote an essay, The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he predicted that in the era of his grandchildren, that people would only work 15 hours a week. <laughs> and in his, in his thinking that, you know, we, we built a productive capacity that makes that possible. And if you look around today, you know, that productive capacity is even greater. And yet we've moved in the opposite direction. And what 
what Fred's film helps us get in touch with is the struggle against that. We have the ability to make the world over as the old song goes. And like, we have it within our power, but we have to come together and, and imagine a better future first. And that's what this film helps us do. Thank you, Joe. Fred? Uh, that's right. Uh, that was my goal. And I, I'm glad that it's beginning to achieve that based upon this uh, small focus group right here. Um, my hope was that it, it makes a small contribution to understanding labor history and the importance of the necessary historical alliance between labor and the left and opening up the possibility of changing the world on behalf of working people. I think if more widely known, the lessons of the eight-hour day struggle and the history of May Day would provide some inoculation against xenophobia and racism and cold wars and other divisions among people that have common interests. The Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions set May 1st, 1886 as the big day. On May Day, a third of a million workers left their workplaces around the country. In many cities, the strikes and demonstrations continued for days. In New York, 10,000 marched and swelled a meeting in Union Square where the future president of the American Federation of Labor, Sam Gompers, predicted that. May 1st would forever be remembered as a second declaration of independence. In Louisville, black and white members of the Knights of Labor, ignoring their conservative national leadership, left work and marched together in a parade of 6,000. The Knights' motto was, an injury to one, is the concern of all. And in a time of enormous prejudice, many of its local assemblies nonetheless tried to live up to that ideal. Although parks in Louisville were off limits to African Americans, the parade ended in National Park with an integrated demonstration. A Black-owned newspaper reported, thus have the Knights of Labor broken down the walls of prejudice. The city with the largest disruption to business as usual was Chicago. 80,000 strikers turned out, shutting some of the biggest factories. The majority were immigrants, Polish Catholics, Russian Jews, and Germans, who were especially active on the political left. But they came from elsewhere in Europe as well. The McCormick Reaper Works, a gigantic agricultural equipment factory, had already been on strike since February. And the factory was being run by strikebreakers with the assistance of hundreds of Chicago police and armed thugs hired by the company. An eight-hour demonstration was being held May 3rd by several thousand lumbermen near the factory when the bell signaled the end of the day for the strikebreakers. As they left, the crowd confronted them. A fight broke out. Police fired into the melee, killing one striker, with more dying of their wounds soon after. One of the speakers at the rally, and a witness to the police killings, was Auguste Spies, a socialist journalist and a leading member of the Central Labor Council. He ran back to his office and produced a flyer in English and German calling for a demonstration the next evening at 7.30 in Haymarket Square to protest the police violence. Thousands of copies were distributed the next morning all over town. The hastily called meeting competed with several others in nearby neighborhoods, and a rainstorm was gathering. But around 3,000 showed up, filling just part of the large square. Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison left as the rain began to fall. He stopped in at the local police station and told Captain John Bonfield, who had gathered nearly 200 police and was planning to suppress the demonstration, that it was peaceful, winding down due to the rain, and that he should send the police back to their precincts. Instead, Bonfield ordered his men to move in and break up the demonstration. By then, there were about an even number of demonstrators and police. As the police moved into the crowd, someone threw a bomb into their midst. One officer was killed and dozens injured. In the confusion, the police opened fire in all directions, killing demonstrators and police alike. The next day, Mayor Harrison declared martial law and soon hundreds were arrested. Some were union leaders and left-wing activists, and others were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Eventually, all but eight men were released. These eight were charged with murder. 
The working class leaders, six of whom were German immigrants, and several of whom were never in Haymarket Square, were chosen not due to any evidence that connected them to the bomb. Indeed, the bomber was never found. What linked the eight was their effectiveness as organizers in the city's largely immigrant working class. Normal jury selection processes were suspended, and a jury was handpicked for its hostility to unions, socialism, and anarchism. The judge ordered that all eight were to be tried together in a conspiracy trial. He forbade the defense to clarify any of the men's political beliefs, ordering them only to respond directly to specific points raised by the prosecution, while the prosecution spoke at great length about anarchism and violence. The state's attorney candidly described what this trial was about. He said, Law is on trial. Anarchy is on trial. These men have been selected, picked out by the grand jury, and indicted because they are the leaders. They are no more guilty than those thousands who follow them. Gentlemen of the jury, convict these men, make examples of them, hang them, and you save our institutions, our society. Seven of the eight were convicted, four were executed, and another committed suicide or was murdered in his cell. Lucy Parsons, the wife of one of the defendants, worked tirelessly to clear his name and those of the other class war prisoners. Chicago police said she was more dangerous than a thousand rioters. A few years later, Illinois Governor Peter Altgeld, over furious protests by law enforcement, pardoned the remaining three prisoners. He believed, as legal scholars do today, that the trial had been a farce. In the hysterical atmosphere of the nation's first employer-orchestrated Red Scare, the momentum of the eight-hour movement was greatly slowed. Ultimately, it took more than 50 years before the eight-hour day became part of federal law. So how did May Day become an international workers' holiday? The last quarter of the 19th century saw the growth all over the world of a movement for socialism. The International Workingmen's Association of Karl Marx had been disbanded in 1876. But a new international, founded in Paris in 1889, represented millions of workers due to the rise of large mass political parties of the left, dedicated to a transition from capitalism to socialism. In one of its first official acts, in response to the travesty of justice in Chicago, the Second Socialist International proclaimed that each May 1st, workers the world over should demonstrate and act, quote, in a manner suited to the conditions in their own country, unquote, to achieve the eight-hour workday. Since that time, nearly 100 countries have established May 1st as International Workers' Day, or Labor Day. We mean to make things over, a history of May Day, is a new half-hour documentary video written and directed by East Bay DSA member Fred Glass. We were joined by labor historian Joe McCartan. Fred Glass is a labor historian and retired union communications director and was recently elected a member of the California DSA State Committee. Check out his book, From Mission to Microchip, A History of the California Labor Movement. The D.C. Labor Fest and D.C. Labor Film Fest run throughout the month of May. You can get complete details at dclabor.org, along with links to order tickets or RSVP. You can watch movie trailers and download the free Labor Fest guide. Thanks so much for listening to our show today. And remember, this is a union town, a union town. All down the line, this is a union town, a union town, all down the line. And if you come to strip our rights away, we'll give you hell every time. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. Today the policeman's a union man, for the firefighters, my friend. And the kids locked in the Capitol are fighting till the end. And we're not gonna break tonight, and we're not gonna bend. Some say the union's down, but I asked around, and everybody said, This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. And if they come to strip our rights away, we'll give them hell every time. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line.
music That's why my friend the blood tastes good Every time I'm here I got a will to win and a Cheshire grin Yeah, the night watchman is near And you can't get it where you're at But you can sure get it here So come rain or sleet or dark at night Come wind or frigid snow There's a hundred thousand in the streets And that number's gonna grow And when we put the governor on trial I'll be in the front row Just take a look around We're a union town One, two, three, four, let's go This is a union town A union town Hold down the line This is a union town A union town Hold down the line And if they come to strip our rights away We'll give them hell every time This is a union town A union town Hold down the line mm -hmm.